0: Welcome to We Are Rivers, a podcast where we tell stories and talk issues about the rivers that connect us. I'm Paige Bono, your host. Today we're going to talk wildlife. I'm so excited. Uh, And specifically, we're going to talk about beavers and killer whales. And as you might have guessed, the common thread between those maybe seemingly unrelated species is rivers. All of our guests today are really interesting and knowledgeable, and as you'll soon find out, they're super passionate about what they do. This podcast could have been hours and hours long. Um, You'll be glad to know it's not, but if you are enticed to learn more and spend more time with our guests, please check out the show notes, lots more for you there. We're going to start with the Epic Ecosystem Engineers before learning more about whale poop sniffing pups. You heard that right. Don't try to say it too fast. Um, And their contributions to research around what's impacting killer whales in the Northwest and the West Coast. Um, But before we do, we've invited Dr. Danielle Perry from the Free Flowing Rivers Lab to sort of set the stage for us.
1: I'm a professor, I'm an assistant professor at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff in the School of Earth and Sustainability. And I run the Free-Flowing Rivers Lab that's here. And the research that we conduct in the Free-Flowing Rivers Lab is uh, all centered around um, river conservation and restoration. Uh, Most of it is policy oriented and geospatial analysis. and, um, and so I do research and the graduate students and undergraduate students that I advise also do research projects related to uh, rivers in the United States and all around the world.
0: Tell me a little bit about how you came to that work.
1: People ask how I get involved with water. And I, um, I mean, it really starts from my childhood. I grew up uh, in Florida. Uh, on an island in a lake surrounded by rivers that flow out to the Gulf of Mexico. And I had the Atlantic on the other side. So I spent my entire life in the water. But my love, my true, true love for rivers started when I was eight. My, my family took me whitewater rafting up in Georgia. And uh, I went down the rapids and fell in love with it and did it again when I was 10 on the Chautuga River. <laughs> And I decided then that I wanted to be a river guide when I grew up.
0: Danielle did go on to become a raft guide on the Rio Grande River just outside of Taos, New Mexico, um, and then sort of chased water. She wanted to be able to to be to boat year round um, to Costa Rica and got involved with some advocacy work there that really inspired her um, to come back home and get both her master's and PhD so that she could do um, science informed advocacy for the rivers that she loves here at home. So the focus of the conversation today um, and kind of where I want to take your attention is toward rivers and wildlife. I'd be curious to hear you, you know, just sort of 30,000 foot view, you know, how you think about and understand the relationship between wildlife and rivers.
1: So when we think about rivers and they're important for wildlife, um, we have to think about not just the water in the river and the aquatic species, but also the riparian habitat, or that habitat that's in the that, what we call the transition zone between the water and the uplands outside of the floodplain. So that riparian habitat is incredibly important um, and for the riverine ecosystem, especially in Western rivers. Um, because the wildlife species out here are really dependent on the vegetative communities that are in those riparian corridors. So for example, in Arizona and New Mexico, 80% of all vertebrate species use the riparian area for at least half of their life cycles. And more than half of those species are totally dependent on the riparian area. And um, in Arizona, resident wildlife species, so we're talking about species that don't migrate, that stay always in one area, 60 to 75% of those resident species depend on the riparian areas to sustain their populations. But, Riparian areas, those corridors along rivers, make up less than half a percent of the state land area here in Arizona. Wow. Think of that, less than half of 1%. So rivers and riparian areas are incredibly scarce features on the landscape, but they're integrators of the landscape. They connect the mountains with the oceans. They connect the floodplains with the water. And all the species depend on those rivers, nearly all the species depend on those rivers as migratory corridors, as sources of water and in otherwise really arid area where there's not a lot of water.
0: With that initial introduction and sort of groundwork from Danielle and a shared understanding of just how not only important, but how really disproportionately important rivers are in the landscape, given sort of the tiny bit of space they really occupy. um, We're gonna turn to Mark Beardsley to learn about beavers. let kind of kick it off and, Maybe we'll start, Mark, if you can just tell us a little bit about who you are um, and then about the species we're going to talk about today.
2: Yeah, I'm Mark Beardsley. I'm uh, um, from Ecometrics in Buena Vista, Colorado, and I'm an ecologist. I've worked on streams and wetlands for about 25 years in uh, Colorado Rockies, Um, became very interested in beavers just it just became obvious to me in studying wetlands and streams how important they were to stream health and um um, and we're fortunate where i spent most of my time working in south park um, there's a lot of nice wild places up there where there are still some very healthy intact beaver systems um and, and and watching those over the years just it became a fascination understanding what those animals are doing and why they're so important to streams and stream health and it's over the last 20 years i've i've watched interest grow in beavers because well because of that mostly and also because they're such cute cuddly <laughs> they're, they're it's hard to not like them when you see them <laughs>
0: can you spend a minute just kind of describing beavers to me I imagine most of our audience are familiar but um, for anybody who hasn't spent much time with them, what are they like?
2: yeah um they're they're an odd animal they're an aquatic rodent um, and they kind of evolved over five million years ago <laughs> and they they through some kind of weird quirk of evolution they, they be, they're these aquatic animals, and they they learn to adapt to live in dry places, not by adapting to being in the dry, but by learning how to make dry places wet. As ecologists, we call them ecosystem engineers. They 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 modify their environment. They create wetlands um, on a on a grand scale, actually, because that's what they need to do to live in a lot of these places on small streams and you know in arid environments like. Colorado and New Mexico. Actually, they they once lived across the entire swath of the of northern the northern hemisphere, um, and it's only recently that their their range has shrunk.
0: Yeah, can we yeah. talk a little bit about why that range has shrunk?
2: Yeah, they um they they're a great commodity through ever since the Middle Ages actually, <laughs> when they were trapped for fur and castoreum, which is one of the oils they produce. Um, but they it, it just blew up in the 1700s, 1800s um, for the fur trade because their fur is so fine, it's so valuable, it makes perfect felt. And that's what hats were made out of um, in those days. If you were wearing a hat, you were wearing beaver fur. So the, the fur trade is really what spawned um, a lot of the expansion to the West and to the U S and Canada and in the process of over, you know, in, in just a few decades, really a lot of that land was trapped out.
0: And how did the landscape change? And I think, you know, specifically rivers and streams with the absence of, or massive reduction in beavers.
2: It, It, they became these, these habitats became simplified because what, the way that the way I think about beavers is they, they are, uh, you know, the way they modify their environments for their own good and for the good of all these other animals that take advantage of the works they do um, is, is that they're kind of part of this big ecological machinery that keeps these that had naturally evolved to keep these systems complex and healthy and functioning. Um, And when that, piece of the machinery was removed the streams have became much more simplified um they turned into the single thread channels that we're so we so commonly think of today as like a normal stream when you, if i ask somebody to draw a picture of a stream that you know we all draw a squiggly blue line with a little green fringe around it but before and 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 some streams are naturally like that but many of them were much more complex systems because of the beavers. So, when they were trapped out, we were left with a sort of legacy of these simplified, dried out stream systems, which subsequently is where we, you know, in, in Western settlement, that's where people settled first, was in these valleys that had become dried out after the fur trade. Because that's where the fertile soil was. That's where the streams were. Um,
0: what would people draw? What would it look like to draw a system where beavers are healthy and engaging?
2: <laughs> that's a good question. And it it's fun because we just, I was just teaching a class that was titled Partnering with Beaver and River Restoration. <laughs> and we started that. These are all professionals taking this class. And we started with that exercise of draw a picture of what what a healthy stream looks like to you and most people answered i can't it's too complex it's systems there's ponds there's multiple channels there's emergent wetland there's all these different types of of uh of plants and vegetation so it, you know an animal moving around in there can experience so many different types of environments over a very short period and they're dynamic they they, they change it's not like they're built and they stay put um, they're always changing. They're always moving. There's plants. Are, there's plant succession going on. There's ponds are being built, then they're broken down. And I, I probably didn't mention it earlier, but one of the obvious things that people know, or the the biggest impact beavers have, is they they build dams and they create these big, broad, wet systems by with their little rodent hands, like packing mud and moving sticks and just building you know, pushing water around to, to, to make themselves a nice little habitat.
0: Wiley, smart. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you've used the term complex and complexity a number of times, and I'm curious, you know, what is the value of that complex ecosystem? What else benefits? And um, yeah, why do we want that?
2: A, A way a lot of scientists have portrayed the influence of beavers on these systems is, is a positive feedback loop. Um, and I call, I think of it as a biological engine that's driving the, the the complexity and the function of these systems. And that engine's a fairly simple one. It's beavers take wetland vegetation, mostly woody vegetation like shrubs, like aspen and and willows. They use that to build dams. <laughs> And those dams create their kind of wet habitat. Those wetlands spread. They support more wetland vegetation and more woody woody species on these riparian zones. And then um, that create yeah, so <laughs> basically the dams yeah. create the hydrology that creates the vegetation that creates more beavers, that <laughs> creates more dams, that creates more veget, you know, hydrology, <laughs> more vegetation, and that cycle is what it keeps the system going and so when we step in it's 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 actually trying to understand what what's missing in that cycle and mm-hmm. and you know using our efforts to try and get those back so that the system can up and run on its own for the especially arid parts in the desert they they may be a lot more important than we think because a lot of those systems are they, they they can dry up you know these streams can dry up in between events and beaver ponds beaver complexes um, and the pond you know the ponds and the deep water that they create are these refuges of wet areas that persist while stream flow drops to zero and so above and beyond them storing water kind of in the sponge that's released later to hopefully maintain base flows on a watershed scale. They are also these ref refuges of aquatic habitat that persist through the periods of drought where if they weren't there, things would all dry up. And I'm confident that a lot of the native aquatic species, relied on that um, persistence of these. Um, So I think that's another example of where restoring beaver complexes, well restoring beaver and the beaver complexes that they create um, is is a key to conserving a lot of other species that depend on those habitats.
0: You know, I imagine you spent a lot of time watching beavers, um, and you started to sort of describe them using their little rodent paws to build um, these dams. But you know, what are there? I've seen them described as like worker bees, or um, you know, sort of personified as very, uh, yeah, blue-collar, hardworking creatures. Um, but I'm curious how you would describe them. I think
2: that's a pretty good description. I haven't heard that. Is I've heard um uh, referred to as the commoners. <laughs> so yeah, I guess that is the blue collar workers. Um, they, they are hardworking and that's why we, I mean, have all these, uh, euphemisms or whatever about, about them as, you know, busy as a beaver, eager as a beaver. And, um, yeah, when you see them work, they, they work hard. They also play a lot. <laughs> and what does they,
0: it look like when they play? <laughs>
2: they'll when they first emerge uh, so a fun thing to do is go find where they're living and especially in the spring after the the ice melts and they're starting to emerge from their their lodges and spending more time outside they'll they'll you, you go and watch them when they're doing that and they'll they'll come out and they'll come out kind of one at a time and start swimming around in circles and then a couple more the kits will come out and they'll swim around in circles together and splash around they push each other around and um you know very very playful <laughs> but when it comes down to the getting the work done that's that's you know they're they're they focus and that's that's what makes them so powerful as ecosystem engineers keystone species is that they they work incessantly to keep their habitats the way they Need them and want them. Um, um, so when you know they're constantly inspecting their dams, and when there's a little leak, they go plug them up. And and, and i you learn more by, you know the, you learn more by watching that than you can ever really learn in a, a a class or just from a book. And and some of the best books I've read are are by people that just spent years watching. And observing and um it, it's pretty neat there it, it's remarkable that something like that evolved honestly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> just like wow um, but one stick at a time that's how s- some of my colleagues say they they get their work done <laughs> one stick at a time they're little guys they move little pieces of wood one at a time they pick up mud hey, but that you know that's a, just another thing they do that keeps these systems complex you know there's constantly yeah. working over the landscape
0: what else um what are other fun facts or myths that you want to debunk about beavers
2: let's see <laughs> there, there there's so there's so many oh. that the biggest one was that they are fish eaters <laughs> uh, that's not the biggest one that was the oldest one because that and that was portrayed in Aesop's Fables, I believe. Oh, the wow. beavers were portrayed as sitting down at a dinner eating fish and everybody thought they were fish eaters. But huh. No, um, they don't, so they don't, they don't eat fish. But they, um, I think that they are necessarily uh, in conflict with the things that humans want to do. That might be the biggest myth. To me, like, um, you know, I, I think we, I guess I'll keep quoting Enos Mills because he was a great naturalist and I I love his, his book from, it's worth reading, 1913 in beaver world. Um, but his famous quote from that is a live beaver is worth more to humanity than a dead one. (laughs) Um, they're not necessarily understanding the value of them, uh, is kind of critical. And that might be one of the biggest misconceptions is that, hey, this, this may not just be a a source of fur or source of oil or a conflict with what you're trying to do. It may be a partner. You know, one of the things we didn't talk about as much was, you know, maybe highlighting some of the conflicts that really are there and it's not a panacea there's you know we we can't have beavers everywhere it's like we need to be very realistic about um about the limitations and that's and i and i say that very honestly and openly because i i I can empathize with, with somebody who's Dealing with you know trying to run an irrigation system that just keeps getting clogged up, or their road keeps getting flooded, or they unfortunately have a house that's in a spot that would get flooded, and the those are very real things. It, it is a compromise. Um, yeah. And, and so you don't want to dismiss it and just say, well, too bad for all you guys. Like we're we're on this train and we're beavers over people. It's it's not that at all. We need to all be good neighbors in this because it can work and it can work in a lot of places and we can solve complex conflicts and complex situations. But it's a lot about, you know, having conversations with each other and being being honest and understanding what everybody kinda needs because we're we've created a very complex society and wilderness situation and it's uh, it's new and novel. Yeah. Um,
0: Maybe.
2: Highly nuanced. <laughs> Highly nuanced.
0: Toward the end of our conversation, Mark mentioned a number of great resources that you can turn to for more information about beaver. Um, those are in our show notes, but two that he mentioned were Sarah Koningsberg's Beaver Believers and Ben Goldfarb's Eager The Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Before we go on, a quick interlude: Beavers need rivers. Salmon need rivers. Killer whales need salmon. It's all connected. And in order for us to stay connected and to continue telling stories and talking issues about the rivers that connect all of us, we need your support of the We Are Rivers podcast. Please consider supporting us with a monthly donation to americanriversorg slash sustainers American Rivers is a five hundred one c three, so your donation is one hundred percent tax deductible. Thanks so much and back to the episode. Part of Mark and I's conversation that I had to cut for length turned to um, some concerns about impacts of beaver dams on salmon. But one of the things that Mark underscored and emphasized, and you'll hear others speak to it as well, is that beaver and salmon co-evolved and coexisted together for thousands of years. And it really wasn't until, you know, colonizer impacts and degradation on the landscape that we started to see conflicts between these species. Um, And they're really exacerbated by our own impacts. Now let's turn to another species that co-evolved alongside salmon. Um, but before we dive into the research, we're gonna learn a little bit about our guest's relationship with the American River and how her love for it sort of came full circle when she learned that the species she studies relies on it too.
3: Yeah, I I grew up in Sacramento um, on the American River and literally almost every summer day was spent uh, jumping off Big Bertha, which was a cliff into the American River and um, rafting down the American River and just spending huge amounts of of my childhood and teen years uh, on that river. Um, and, you know, always having a dog and always cleaning the dog after the dog rolled in the uh, spawned out salmon carcasses. I don't know what it was about them, but dogs love dead salmon. Uh, my name is Dr. Deborah Giles, but I go by my last name, Giles. Uh, I'm a killer whale researcher, whale researcher with the University of Washington Center for Conservation Biology, and the science and research director for a nonprofit called Wild Orca. So, in my job with the uh, Center for Conservation Biology. We utilize a scat detection dog on the front of our boat to help sniff out killer whale poop, which we collect. And then it's analyzed in Dr. Wasser's lab on the main campus in Seattle. And we look for things associated with hormones like nutrition hormones, stress hormones, pregnancy hormones, uh, we can tell things like if a if it's a female that has left the sample, if she's pregnant, and not only if she's pregnant, but how pregnant. So that's kind of my job with the university. And then um, my job with the wild orca is to take the science, to take the findings from not only our research, but other research and translate it in a way that uh, is uh, understandable and uh, can be taken by the public and given to policymakers to help bring about the needed uh, changes in throughout uh, the, all of the ecosystems that the whales rely on. And, and that really does start in, in rivers that spawn the fish that these whales need.
0: I love it, and I want to get to the rivers, but before that, I just want to pause for one second. You said it's a poop-sniffing pup. Can you talk a little bit about about that? Um, I'm curious, you know, how you found that, yeah, how that idea came to be and what it looks like in practice.
3: Yeah, so um, the idea of using conservation canines came to Sam, Dr. Wasser in 1997, actually, um, as a way to non-invasively study what was going on inside an animal. And so I've been very fortunate to get to work with a couple of dogs. Tucker was the first dog I worked with um, for about, um, what, nine years or so. Uh, We found over 600 samples together. And then um, I got to work with uh, two um, Australian Shepherds, Jack and Dio, for two years. And then in 2019, I got to train my own dog.
0: So switching gears a little bit to talk about um, the killer whales, Maybe just before we sort of dive into what's happening with them and what they need, can you just describe them? I mean, I think it's probably unlikely that anyone hasn't seen or isn't at least somewhat familiar with what a killer whale is. But maybe you can debunk some myths for us and um, just kind of tell us what these creatures are like.
3: Yeah, so killer whales are uh, are a worldwide species. There, it's one species, or Sinus Orca, for all the different killer whales that occur around the world. Um, it really shouldn't be that way, though. They they are distinct enough in in their uh, mitochondrial DNA and in their behaviors that really they should be a subspecies. Different groups should be considered subspecies. Um, I study. A one popular. I started out studying one population here, mostly in Washington State. They're called the Southern Resident Killer Whales. This is a popular, a very small population of animals that only number seventy-five right now. Uh, they were highly targeted in the '60s and '70s for the captive industry. Uh, up to a third of their population, or maybe even more, was removed or killed in the process for that for that industry. Uh, By 1976, the captures had ended, and at that time, there were just 71 individuals left in the fish-eating southern resident community. So this is one clan, one population that is connected by their dialect and by their genetics. They do not outbreed with other ecotypes or other killer whales that they come into into the range with. Um, they don't speak the same language. Their social dynamics are different uh, with this fish eating uh, population of whales that both males and females stay with their mother their entire life uh, with one or two notable exceptions where the mother died and the, the, those that boy, one in particular, is actually pod hopping, if you will, uh, going with the oldest females in the other pods for, uh, for his support. That they're incredibly socially bonded animals, both within their pod and within their uh, entire community. So it's one population um, or clan, we call it. And within that, there's three pods, J-pod, K-pod, and L-pod. And then within those pods, there's uh, the, the females are the, the leaders of their family. So this is a matriarchal society. Um, the females are the ones that uh, tell the family when they're going to go and where they're going to go. Um, and that's really important because it it allows them to be um, to have that knowledge, that old knowledge that these oldest females would would retain and be passing on. And so it's very important at times when, you know, they might be coming to a river mouth where in the past there would have been fish coming back to spawn and there's no fish coming back to spawn, those older females are gonna know the next best place to go and check. Um, You know, every single individual is known. Uh, It is the case now that there are very few left, um, just a handful of animals that were born. uh, I'm trying to think, is there even more than one, uh, less than five, let's put it that way, that that were born prior to when the intense studying started in the kind of mid 70s. So we know every individual, um, and in some cases, exactly when that individual was born. And so they are like family. I mean, they're, they are like family to those of us that that study them, and know them as unique individuals with individual personalities. And so it makes it both wonderful and horrible because when one of them gets sick and dies, it it you know we we know them as 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 you know the unique creatures that they are. So.
0: I guess you know with that a little bit can can you talk about their relationship with rivers
3: yeah so i i always think of the whales as being as co-evolving uh with pacific salmon and of course pacific salmon uh co-evolved with the ecosystems in which they uh occur uh we have this situation where these whales have a wide range they their range goes all the way down to monterey california so, the rivers that, that that's a lot of rivers for the southern residents to have had within their range throughout time, throughout hundreds of thousands of years, and certainly in the last 20 or 30,000 years, um, these rivers would have been incredibly important and incredibly prolific um, um, factories of, of fish. You know, these are, were producers of, of massive amounts of, of specifically Chinook salmon, is what the whales are after. Those are the fattiest, the biggest and fattiest fish of the, of the five species of salmon uh, that the whales come into contact with and, and preferentially forage for and find. Now that would have made, made sense because in the past we would have had Chinook salmon that would have been over 100 pounds coming out of the Snake River, which is a tributary for the Columbia River. So when when you think about a, a long lived, large bodied animal like a killer whale, sometimes it's hard to imagine that these are fi- these are whales that that only eat fish. They've never been documented eating a, ma- a mammal of any kind. And out of all the fish species, they preferentially, absolutely go for any chinook that are out there.
0: Even as recently as 100 to 150 years ago, this wasn't an issue. Chinook were bountiful. The rivers that the southern resident killer whales rely on used to produce some of the greatest biomass of salmon in the entire world, but impacts to rivers from dams and habitat degradation to the fisheries from overfishing and increased predation and competition from non-native species have all pushed salmon to a teeny, teeny fraction of what they formerly were.
3: Even as recently as a hundred years ago, we had salmon that were a hundred pounds. It's a blink of an eye for the, for the whales and, um, and they're trying to adapt, but, but they, you know, they are like so many of us, they're, they are bound by their culture and by what they're taught by their mother and their mothers and their grandmothers are still taking them back to these rivers and they loop at the mouth of these rivers at times when in the past uh large, large numbers into the millions of fish would have been coming back to their needle river. And that's just not the case now. And so that's, that's really the the crux of the problem. There's just not enough fish making it back to their needle rivers, um, that the whales would intercept within that range, mostly Western Vancouver Island down to Monterey.
0: And what's happening on those rivers, um, that's making it so that the fish Aren't there?
3: Pretty much everything humanly possible to alter the river systems throughout the Wales Range is being done and has been done in the past. So, uh, to begin with, so many rivers have been river corridors, riparian corridors, um, you know, those, those riparian corridors have been denuded. And agriculture has been pushed right up to the edge of rivers, uh, and then the inputs to the river from agriculture—everything from uh, um, herbicides, pesticides, fertilizers—all of these things uh, making their all of these chemicals, man-made toxicants, making their way into the into the river system. And these are these are they're fat-loving toxicants. They bind to that basically. And, uh, the smallest of the, of the critters that are in the, the water, the zooplankton and phytoplankton uptake that, that toxin, those toxicants, and then that's eaten by the, the exiting salmon smolt, for example. Uh, and, and then the bigger fish that are eating the smolt are even more toxic. Uh, and then damming, of course, damming is one of the biggest, uh, man-made, um, changes that has occurred on most of our rivers in the Pacific Northwest and all the way, all the way down through California. And dams, uh, dams are dams, dams block rivers. Uh, We have done some modification in the way of fish ladders. There's, I would say varying degrees of uh, success in fish ladder, uh, fish passage uh, past dams. Uh, But the very fact of the matter is, is that dams create reservoirs behind them. And reservoirs create, um, in some cases, uh, uh, conditions that are not conducive to freshwater, cold, freshwater spawning ha- uh, fish, uh, both exiting the river and the exiting smolt and the returning adults. So again, in a very short amount of time, we we've completely changed the habitat for these animals that that call these places home, and it has cascading effects through the entire food web. And that's what we're seeing. You know, sa- salmon feed specifically Chinook salmon. I know, 140 species rely on Chinook salmon. It's the hard thing is, is that we humans know what we've done to harm the rivers and to harm to, to essentially decimate salmon spawning ha- habitat. Uh, we know what we've done wrong, and we know how to fix it. It's just a matter of not having the political will yet to do something about it. Do.
0: The orca have time to wait until we have that political will.
3: We're running out of time. The whales are running out of time. Um, I do think that there is enough time that they are not past that point of no return. Uh, The females can get pregnant. They're getting pregnant all the time, Um, but they just can't carry their calves to, to full term. We know that 69% of the females that we've surveyed that were pregnant have lost their calves uh, to miscarriage. And the females that are losing their calves are the ones that are not getting enough nutrition. We can tell that from their nutrition profile. And uh, so it's the short answer is yes, I do believe that there is still time for the whales to, to recover, but we need to make quick changes to what's happening in the river system, as well as longer term changes uh, in the form of uh, habitat restoration efforts. Um, So removing dams whenever possible, habitat restoration efforts, doing some uh, curtailing of fishing uh, at targeted times and in targeted places. And then yes, the whales will recover and the salmon will recover. Both of these species are incredibly resilient um, and are finally adapted uh, to weathering change, but they can only be pushed so far and so uh, the more people that understand what is happening along the rivers, what's happening for salmon and what's happening as a result of those things for the whales uh, the better.
0: Well um Giles I that was great and is there anything that I didn't ask or that you know the episode brought up that you're like oh, I really want to mention?
3: I guess what I would just like to say is, um, you know, every single individual has an opportunity to get involved. Every single action makes a difference, and the more people that get involved, the, the faster these systems are going to be, be recovered. Um, we've seen it happen, and uh, I just really strongly encourage people to be a part of that change.
0: When you think about how our impacts on these rivers exists in the sort of scale of time, it's wild how much degradation we've caused, the way we've changed habitats in such a relatively short amount of time and with such dire consequences. We're in the middle of a global biodiversity decline and a recent study found that nearly 76% of freshwater species, fish species have been lost since just the 1970s. I asked Danielle about the consequences of these changes and about some possible solutions. You've highlighted what we understand about the reliance of wildlife on um, waters and riparian habitat. What don't we know and what do we stand to sort of botch because we don't know it yet?
1: The answer to your question is we don't actually know. When we as humans have never lived when at a time when we've lost so many species that we're starting to see the the negative cascading in the ecosystem so much that it threatens our own existence. But we could get to that place. We really need to think about the interconnectedness of all these species and how the loss of those species really affect our ability to feed ourselves and to survive. So
0: what should we, how should we think about possible solutions? What's the way out of this? How do we invest our time and energy and money? The annual
1: cost of recovering endangered species act listed fishes is more than $800 million a year. So that's, more than what we spend collectively for all the other animal and plant species that are listed as endangered species. So we're spending all this money on managing fish because we've let them get to the point that they're endangered and need human intervention to keep them in existence. What if we spent that much money on res- or more restoring our rivers or really managing our river systems in an integrated way that takes into consideration all three of those components the economic the social and the ecological
0: equally weighted
1: (laughs) equally weighted yes no one gets more attention than the other that's a holistic approach to managing our river resources, to managing our
0: river ecosystem. I'm so grateful for the time and knowledge that Dr. Perry and Dr. Giles and Mark Bairdsley all shared today. I learned a ton. Um, And I feel like in case there was ever any doubt, it's just increasingly clear the way that rivers weave not only are human communities together, but all of these wildlife communities, and that we are not distinct. We are certainly part of that same community. If we don't take care of the salmon and the caddisfly and the cottonwood leaf litter, we stand to lose not only those creatures, but also the killer whales and all the other species that rely on an intact and working system. And we're one of them. Just a reminder that this is part one of a two-part episode, so be sure to tune in for our next transmission, coming your way with a pretty great cast of characters shortly. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Send us your feedback, rate and comment, share the podcast with your friends. And as always, thanks so much for tuning in.